Yesterday, we were a lot of us were in this room. We had a had a wedding. Uh, Doug and and Doug and Melanie Kilchenman. Now it used to be Doug uh, Kilchenman, Melanie Knopp, and it's not that way anymore. It's not that way. But we uh, wild thing happened. It was terrible, man. We went through the whole ceremony, and somehow the doors got locked in the building, and we went through the whole service. With all the music, the whole, you know, shop, the vows, the whole deal, and the groom was locked outside the door. <laughs> but you know what? Nobody noticed. Just went through the, the whole deal. And, and I know what you're saying right now. There's no way in the world that could happen. And, and you're right. It, it, it didn't. But now, now listen. According to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Something has happened that is a whole lot more atrocious and incredible than going through a marriage ceremony without the groom. What it says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 has happened is that all over the world this morning, people have gathered together in churches just like this one. And there's a lot of hoopla on the inside. Everybody's hooping it up. Oh, 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 oh for Jesus and they're singing Jesus 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 and they're celebrating the presence of Jesus on the inside but he ain't there he's on the outside spiritually he's on the outside of the church knocking on the outside of that door and there's so much junk going on in the name of Jesus on the inside that nobody even notices and in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, what our Lord is letting us know here in this passage is that is what is characteristic of the church in this period of time, the, the period of time that we're presently living in. All right. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to be looking at our, our Lord's description and assessment of the church in the period of time that we're presently living in. You know, maybe you wondered in your life, you know, I wonder what Jesus would have to say about all of the stuff that goes on in the world today under the name of Christianity and the name of the church of Jesus Christ. Well, wonder no more because that's exactly what the Lord does for us in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Now, let me tell you, some of you folks who have not been here for this study, let me let you know how we come to that conclusion. Now, I'm going to have to give you just a, a real quick synopsis, but now, now listen very carefully so that you understand the whole rest of this message. In the Word of God, there's three la layers, as it were, of application. There is a historical application. That is, the events that you read about, they literally happened in history. There is also... A doctrinal or a prophetic application of those verses that happened in history for a particular reason it's there to teach us something it's there prophesying something that will take place in the future and then there's a third layer of application and that would be the inspirational or the devotional the practical application this is what happened and this is what it means and this is how it applies to my life and when we come into Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it's very important that you understand those three levels or three layers of application. Historically, 
These were seven letters that were written to seven real churches in Asia Minor around 95 A.D. or so. They were addressing, as the Lord Jesus Christ looked into that church, they were, he was assessing the needs there, and he wrote to them about specific things that were going on in that church in 95 A.D. But people who have been students of the Word of God have noticed for years and years and years, this is not some new wave teaching or anything like that, people who have rightly divided the book of Revelation understand the fact that in a prophetic application, the seven letters written, written to the seven churches represent seven periods of history that pick up where the book of Acts leaves off, taking you all the way up to the rapture, which is found in the book of Revelation in chapter 4 and verse 1. So he's bringing us through these seven periods of church history. We have come thus far through the first six of those. The sixth one was the most incredible one in all of, of, of history. It was the Philadelphian church period. We, we, we just kind of camped out on that Philadelphian one because it is such a stark contrast to the seventh period of church history, that one that we are presently living in at this period of, of time. Now, as we've come through each one of these letters, our, our Lord follows a very consistent outline. Our outline has been the same ever since we started these seven letters. They each begin, Roman numeral one, they each begin with a commission. And what our Lord does is he lets us know in each one of these letters to whom the letter is being written or who it is that he's actually addressing. And you'll notice that in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3, it begins this way. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. Now just stop right there. Now, this morning we're not going to take a whole lot of time with the historical application of this, talking about the, the historic church that was found in the city of Laodicea located in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, around 95 AD. We're not going to be able to spend a whole lot of time there. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about that prophetic application. We're going to look at this letter and how it applies to this period of time that we're presently living in. And the dates of this Laodicean church period are from approximately 1900 AD, and it'll take us right up to the rapture of the church which could literally be at any moment even before this service is over and we pray that it is amen and one of the things that we've noticed as we've come through each one of these letters is that the meaning of the the name of each of these churches is significant in that it is actually god's one word capsulization of the church in that time period or that that that, that letter represents and coincidentally enough, the, the one word capsulization that our Lord gives to that 100, approximately 100 year period from approximately 1900 to the year 2000 or so, that one word capsulization is the word Laodicea. The word means the rights of the people. The rights of the people or civil Rights. Now, let me ask you, does God nail it or what? I mean, does that sound like a one-word capsulization of, of the church of Jesus Christ in the last 100 years? This is a period of time, as you'll see as we get into this this morning, when the people in the church aren't interested in God's rights, they're interested in their rights. They're, they're not interested in the Lord Je Jesus Christ getting what He deserves. 
they're interested in getting what they deserve. I mean, this is the church, th this period of time that he's addressing here, this is the church that is going to be raptured off of this planet, and yet it's the church that has cared less about that event than any of the churches in all of the periods put together. It, it has no, no care about it because you see, what it does is it sees the rapture as a, a potential interruption to my dreams, to my aspirations, and what I'm wanting to do with, with my life. You see, Laodiceans aren't in this thing for him. They're in it for themselves. People in Laodicea don't go to a church because of its stand on the word of God or because it earnestly contends for the faith once delivered to the saints. They don't go to a church. They don't choose a church because it has a single-minded focus on, on, on equipping its people to carry out the mission of Jesus Christ himself of carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth and and making disciples of, of every creature no laodiceans go to a church for what that church can do for them and you see if, if the church that we attend if it's doing something for me then then we'll stick with it you see the bible and truth and jesus the, the mission it has nothing whatsoever to do with it. And so if a Laodicean goes to a church and they begin to get their toes stepped on or, or someone uh, approaches them about carrying out the promises that they made in the church covenant, which they willingly chose to, to, to take on in the first place, then, buddy, watch out because they're out of there. I mean, you have violated their rights. And they don't have to put up with that. You see, if they don't get... The, the attention that they think that they deserve or their kids in the youth department don't get the, the, the attention that they think that they deserve, then, then I'm telling you, buddy, Laodiceans, we're out of there. Hey, the, the fact that, that God led them to that church, that means nothing. Forget the, forget the Word of God. Forget Jesus. Forget the mission. I'm going where they make me feel good. And our Lord nailed us again over in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He begins talking in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about the Laodicean church period. And he says this, This know also that in the last days, that's your Laodicean church period, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And he goes to list from there about 20 different characteristics that are an exact, precise description of the very day that we're living in written almost 2,000 years ago but what he does in that passage is he gives us the overarching characteristic of this this time period he says now listen the times will be perilous in those last days for men shall be lovers of their own selves and verse 4 of 2nd Timothy chapter 3 adds that men shall be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And folks, listen, that is the Laodicean church period. You see, somehow it is, Laodiceans miss the reality of Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, that the Lord Jesus Christ created all things, and for His pleasure they are and were created. Not yours, not mine. We're not on this earth to bring pleasure to ourselves, but for us to bring pleasure to God. 
And our Lord's sad commentary is that Laodiceans have sold themselves out for the God of self and the God of pleasure, which is nothing more than self-gratification. Self is going to always come to the forefront when we're dealing with Laodicea. And you know what? If the truth were known, there's some of you folks that have been coming around here kind of liking the fact that this is a place that teaches the Bible and for a lot of you, this may be the last day that you ever come because this is going to be a message that is not going to bring much pleasure. And so you're going to say, you know what, we're going to find us a church that makes us feel good about ourselves. And you'll miss the fact that what God did is he's been bringing you to a church that's trying to rattle your cage about the state of the church in the Laodicean church period and helping all of us to understand that this thing of the church, this thing of the whole universe and the world it doesn't revolve around us it revolves around him Ooh, we better settle down because all we've done thus far is just talk about our name and it's already getting just a little bit hot in here so that's the commission and then next is the character in each one of these letters as our lord lets them know who the letter is from what he does is he describes himself by giving some various aspects of his character, various aspects of his character that the church in that time period needed to be reminded of if they were ever going to become all that the Lord was wanting them to be. And look at the middle of verse 14 at the characteristics that he details of himself to the church in the Laodicean church period. He says, These things saith the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, if you're going to understand why he presents himself in that way, there's some things that you need to understand and you need to understand about how we got from the glory of the Philadelphian church period to the absolute reproach and wretchedness of the Laodicean church period. And the key to understanding the Laodicean church period is understanding some things about that door that we were talking about in verse 20 of Revelation chapter 3. Now listen, the thing that you need to understand about that door in the Laodicean church period is that that door is closed. It's closed. And Jesus Christ is on the outside of the church. He's on the wrong side of the thing. On the outside, knocking. And the key to understanding that is to see that door in contrast to the door in the previous church period. Look back at what the Lord wrote to the church in the Philadelphian church period in verse 8 of the same chapter. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Now, now listen, something happened to the open door to close that thing when we came into Laodicea. And now, now listen, we don't have the time to go into the, the, all of the details and all of the, the proofs of, of this for you folks who have not been here, but listen, it is a matter of biblical and historical proof. When chapter 3 in Revelation begins, we're in the Sardis church period. This is the great nighttime of Christianity, what we call the Dark Ages. It is a time when the Roman Catholic Church took the hands out of the common man 
the common man lost this book. It was against the law for you to carry that book or to believe that book. And we, we've seen through this study that if you had that book and you trusted that book and you believed that book, that you were martyred for that, you were tortured, you had your eyes gouged out, you had your kids thrown to starving pigs, you had all of these things going on during that period of time. And out of the midst of that darkness, I'm telling you, some of you aren't going to like this, but God places the King James Bible on the earth. And through the nation of England and through the United States of America, what they do is they take the Bible and they believe it. They fall in love with it. And just what it says here in Revelation chapter 3, it becomes the key of David in their hands. It's that key that opens the door to the world. And the King James Bible at that point in history goes into, and again, it's a historical fact. There's no buckingness. I mean, this is just the way that it came down. The King James Bible went into all the world in every corner of the globe. And the scripture says, the entrance of thy word giveth light. And we went from the dark ages to the glorious light of the Philadelphian church period because the light of that book went into every corner of the world. And now listen, I'm telling you, this is not just a King James bias we're talking about. It's a matter of historical record. And what else is a matter of historical record is that in 19 or 1881, in 1881, the nation of England, through the influence of the Jesuits in the theological educational systems in that country, what they did in 1881 is they traded their King James Bible that God had given them, that Bible that God had so used in the Philadelphian church period, and they traded it in for the Roman Catholic Bible of the Dark Ages in a modern version called the Revised Version of 1881. And now listen, it wasn't just the fact that, oh yeah, well, th th this must be a church that doesn't believe you ought to have a modern version. Having modern words in it has nothing whatsoever to do with it. That was a different Bible. It was translated from a totally different set of Greek manuscripts that you trace right back through the Roman Catholic Church of the Dark Ages. England comes along, they make that choice, and the United States wasn't too far behind with their own new modern version translated from the Roman Catholic manuscripts called the American Standard Version of 1901, and bam! The door shuts, and we enter the Laodicean Church Age. Again, just a matter of of history. I mean, if you were taking a test to become a detective or to work in the FBI and they say to you, okay, we would like for you to solve the case of the open and closed door. Your job is to figure out what opens and closes the door. Okay, now here's the facts. The world is so black and dark, it doesn't even know that there's a door. The King James Bible comes in. The lights come on. The door flings open, and we're in the Philadelphian church period. The King James Bible is replaced. The door closes, and the lights start going out, and we enter into the Laodicean church period. Now, what opened and closed the door, boys and girls? You know what? To miss this one, you would have to have be a seminary graduate somewhere. I mean, you, you just couldn't look at the facts and miss that thing. And from that point in history, any place that loses this book, 
and stops believing every word of that book and no longer trusts that book as their final absolute authority, you know what? It's just a matter of time before it gets darker and darker and darker. And ladies and gentlemen, for what has been now for almost 100 years of the so-called Bible scholars revising this book, ridiculing this book, reviling this book, and seeking to replace this book, Christianity is in such a mess right now, it has absolutely no idea in the world where to go to find an inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Again, just look around. I'm giving you the facts this morning. Oh, now I know that in Laodicea, I know all over the world today, men have stood holding a Bible in their hands saying, we believe the Bible's inspired Word of God. And everybody's, we believe it's inerrant. We believe it's infallible. You can trust this book. And they're holding it, and they're waving it while they're preaching. But if you made a beeline up to that guy right as that service came to a conclusion, and you said to him, now, when you were talking about that inspired, inerrant, infallible Bible, did you mean that one you were holding in your hand? And you know what he's going to tell you? No. You see, the Bible was preserved in the original manuscripts. Show me them. Show me the money. Show me the manuscripts. You say you believe in the inspired, infallible, inerrant Bible. It's in the original manuscripts. Okay, show them to me. You see, we're talking about something that doesn't exist. There's not an original manuscript on this planet. Nowhere. So listen, don't wave a Bible in the air saying we trust that absolute standard. Laodicea doesn't have one. And you see, that's why the first thing out of the chute, Jesus says, these things saith the amen. The absolute truth. Something that Laodiceans just can't seem to find. The word amen literally means truth. Idiomatically, it means so be it. And I just want to tell you all while we're talking about this, we don't say it near enough around here. Amen? I can't even get it out of you then. You know what? When you're in church, let me, let me tell you, when you're in church and somebody's nailing truth, nail it. Truth! That, that's what amen is. That's truth right there. I recognize that. That's truth. That's absolute truth. So be it. It's the affirmation of truth, and I believe that our Lord presents himself as the affirmation of truth because, quite honestly, the church in the 20th century has lost the voice of absolute truth. The amen. Then he says in verse 14, These things saith the faithful and true witness. You see, you lose the voice of absolute truth, and you have no witnessing power. You see, the church in Laodicea is not faithful. It's not true. And it has little ability to witness. You know who we're like? We're like the scribes that sat and listened to Jesus when he preached his first sermon. And you know what all the rest of the people said when Jesus got finished preaching his very first sermon? 
You know what their response was? The scripture says in Matthew chapter uh, 7, verses 28 and 29, it says that the people were astonished. We'd say it today, they were absolutely blown away. You know why? It tells you. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You see, you lose your, uh, uh, you lose your authority and you lose your voice as a faithful and true witness. You see, you make an uncertain sound when you lose your authority. You know what? This is a pretty authoritative place. You know why? Because the authority is outside of ourselves. It's in that book. But we're like the scribes. And then he says, These things saith the beginning of the creation of God. Now, obviously, we know that this doesn't mean, as most Laodicean American cults teach, that Christ was the first created being, because the Bible very clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is eternal, that he has always existed as a part of the Godhead. He has always eternally existed in the Godhead, comprised of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Ghost. Jesus is simply saying in verse 14 that he's the one who began creation. That's all he's saying. I'm the one who began this whole thing, and it's exactly what he said. Go back to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. Most of you are familiar with this passage. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you want to know what the Word was, or who it is, verse 14 will dial you in. And the Word was made flesh. It was Jesus Christ, who has always eternally existed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And that's what Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14 is saying. He is the beginning of the creation of God. He's the one who began it all. But I believe that he presents himself to Laodicea with that reminder because we're living in the midst of a Christianity that has absolutely no idea where in the world it came from. It has no roots. You see, the church in Laodicea, it can get swept off into false doctrine and into false movements because it has no understanding of history. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 15 says, that which has been, now listen, it says, that which has been, history, that which has been is now, and that which is to be has already been. And you know what that means? It means that an understanding of history is the key that lets you know where you are right now and it's the key that lets you know where you're heading and we're living at a time when Christianity thinks that it's at one place and we're going to see in just a, another couple of minutes here Jesus says that the Christianity of this day is in a totally different place than where they think they are and the reason is you can't know where you are you can't know where you're going without understanding where you've been so Jesus presents himself to this church as the beginning 
to take us back to our roots. You see, Laodicea, we're not real concerned about history. You see, we're the now generation, right? You know, don't, don't bore me with history. We want to know what the move of the Spirit of God is now. The only problem is if you don't know what the move of the Spirit was historically through the eyes of that book, you're going to wind up in 1997 calling something the move of the Spirit that is a move of a spirit, all right, the seducing spirit of 2 Timothy chapter 4 in verse 1. I'm doing a whole lot better preaching than y'all are doing an amen, and I'll just say that. Come on. You see, and that's one of the key reasons that in this entire letter, Jesus has absolutely no word of commendation for this church. It's, it's Roman numeral three on your outline because all six of the previous periods, all, all six of, of the, the previous letters, no matter how sorry they were, Jesus found something to commend them for. But writing to Laodicea, there's not a positive statement about this period in this entire letter. Now, it, it's the smallest point on your outline, but do understand this as we breeze over this. Jesus is speaking volumes. No commendation. But then we come to the condemnation, and there's plenty of that. In verses 15 through 17. And this condemnation comes in two sections. First of all, let's look at the Laodicean's spiritual analysis of himself. Now, God's going to give us his analysis here in just a minute. That's the second part. But to really appreciate it, you've you got to get our analysis of ourselves. Look at verse 17. Because thou sayest, okay, now here it is, I am rich, I am increased with goods, and I have need of nothing. You see, that's what we think, and God looks at our life, and that's what our life is saying to him. Now, I know, as Laodiceans, we're far too smooth to ever make that statement. But the way that we live our life, that's what our life is saying to God. It's what the Bible calls our conversation. You see, your life speaks. Our life is saying something to God, and that, that's what, what it says. And, and look at how he gets into it again. It says, because thou sayest, you see, we're the say people. You, you see, we, we've gotten this spiritual life thing down, baby, because we've learned the lingo. We know how to talk so spiritual that we can convince ourselves and just about anyone that we really are a spiritual giant. In fact, we, we've learned to say it all so well that we've even convinced ourselves. You see, that, that's what's so dangerous about a layout of seeing is we think we're okay. And some of us this morning, you, we're, we're sitting there going, yeah, preach it, Mark. I hope they're getting this. That's layout of seeing for you right there. Thinking that this is for everyone else except for you. It's for all of us. It, the big mouth at the front, too. But you, you see, saying the right stuff is a far cry from being the right stuff and doing 
the right stuff. Turn back with me, if you will, to the book of 1 John for just a second. God's got some things that he wants to communicate to say people. 1 John chapter 1. And I want you to look at the first three words of verse 6. He says, if we say, and look at the first three words of verse 8. If we say, in the first three words of verse 10, if we say, you see, these are the say people, and he contrasts them with the do people. Look at the first part of verse 7. But if we walk, and look at the, la- uh, the first part of verse 9, if we confess, you see, there's a big difference in God's mind between talking the talk and walking the walk. Look at verse 6 again. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and oh, do we hear that in the Laodicean age. In fact, 25% of the people in this country, according to a Gallup poll, claim to be born again. They say that they have fellowship with him. But listen, most of those what would be over 60 million people through how they live their lives, they walk in darkness. And I want to make sure that you don't miss what God says here. Now listen, forget what I say, okay? Or what I think about it. I want you to get what God says about it. He says, if you say that you have fellowship with God, if you say you know God and you claim to be born again, but your life is characterized by darkness, you are a liar. Now you see, I'm far too much a polished Laodicean to ever bring you into a room and call you a liar. I didn't do it. Jesus did. Check out verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. And notice he didn't say and believe not the truth. He said do the truth. You see, Laodiceans believe the truth. But somehow what they believe never comes forth out of their life. But God says, if you have fellowship, it's going to come out in how you live. You will do the truth. Verse 7, you will walk in the light. You see, God doesn't give two rips about anything you and I say, but what we do. And Laodiceans allow themselves to be deceived because we don't do that. Laodiceans are deceived. Verse 6. They're deceived about their fellowship. Verse 8, they're deceived about their sin. Verse 10, they're deceived about their sinfulness. And though we say all kinds of wonderful things, look at what God says is the reality. Verse 6, we lie. Verse 8, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10, we make Him a liar. God says, look look at verse 6 of chapter 2. He that saith, okay, there it is again, say people, he that saith, he abideth in him, or has fellowship with him, that knows him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. And the whole message of the book of 1 John is how you walk doesn't make you saved, but how you walk proves whether you're really saved 
or not because saved people obey God and walk in the light and walk in the truth and walk like Jesus walked. He says in chapter 5 and verse 13 that the reason that this book is in the Bible, go over there, chapter 5, verse 13. He tells you the reason this book is in the Bible is so we can know whether or not we really have eternal life inside of us. That's why that book is in your Bible. And what's really scary is most Laodiceans think they do. They think they have eternal life and they say that they do. But what the whole book of 1 John says is characteristic of those who do is not a part of their life. Go figure. Now go back to Revelation chapter 3. So God says, Because thou sayest... And what is it that we actually say to God by how we live? This is number two on your outline. What we say is, we are rich. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And I'm not even going to hit the whole materialism thing about Laodicea, though we certainly could. I mean, you go back in this country in the Philadelphian church period, and Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. And the liberty that he was talking about there was religious liberty. His progeny in the 1800s simply said, give me liberty. And now Laodiceans simply say, give me. Give me. Give me more. Give me rights. Give me happiness. Give me glory. Give me. And yes, financially, we are rich and increased with goods and really have need of nothing. I know we want all kinds of stuff, but we don't need for anything. Verse 17 isn't about financial things. These are spiritual things. Spiritually, what we say to God is, we've got it all together. We're spiritually rich. The third analysis of ourselves we're spiritually increased with goods you see we think we're truly furnished unto all good works we think we've got it all together we've gotten it so together number four spiritually we have need of nothing including god and it's obvious that we think those things are true because i mean you can just look at all all kinds of areas where we have somehow deceived ourselves into thinking that we've actually, listen, Laodiceans, we've come to the point where we actually think that we have transcended the teaching of the Bible in some very clear-cut and dogmatic areas. For example, Laodiceans think that they have the ability to love money while they love God at the same time. Love money and love God. I mean, there's no, no other Christian who has ever been on the face of the planet who's been able to do it. I mean, Jesus just flat out said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, ye cannot serve God and money. But you see, as Laodiceans, we've convinced ourselves that we really love God when week after week we live in pursuit of more and more and more and more. And somehow convince ourselves that when the Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, and if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him, somehow Laodiceans say, well, that doesn't mean me. I mean, it's amazing. And it doesn't stop there. Laodiceans also have the ability 
to convince themselves, watch this now, Laodiceans have the ability to convince themselves they're worshiping God while they're in the very process of robbing him. I mean, it happens right in this room every week. People file in here and, and, and tell themselves that they're offering to Jesus the sacrifice of praise because they have a nice, warm, fuzzy when we're singing and because they got their eyes closed real tight and, and because they're saying, saying all kinds of wonderful things supposedly to God and they call it worship when really worship is worth-ship. And every time, folks, that offering plate passes you, you know what you do? You tell God what he's worth to you, regardless of all of the wonderful things that you just said to him through the singing. Hey, you know what God says? Show me the money. Put your money where your mouth is. Now, we don't need your money here. So if you hacked off and think that, you know, yeah, what, all they want is your money down there. Find you a Philadelphian church somewhere. Throw your big bucks at them. <laughs> we don't want your stupid money, okay? That's not the point here. The point is, Laodiceans, we disconnect. Very basic, simple, little principles. I mean, this is not hard stuff. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And some of your treasure isn't with Jesus. It's with Sears and Elderberryman and Kmart and Bueller's. <laughs> you see, Laodiceans have the ability to convince themselves that, that God is, is really, <laughs> you're worth so much to me even though it's never expressed through their offerings and I, it's just amazing Here, here's another one a Laodicean can know full well the mission I mean they can walk you through it man they can take you back to the garden of Eden and show you how Adam God gave him a bride and through the intimacy of their physical relationship they were to reproduce sons of God on the earth and then the second Adam, Jesus Christ, comes along. He restores the image to man that was lost in the fall. And now, spiritually, we as the bride of Christ, the womb of our life, are to, to reproduce sons of God on the earth in a spiritual way by bringing people to Christ. Oh, yeah. We know all about it, don't we? And yet, as Laodiceans, we go year after year after year. Decades. Never bring anyone to Christ. But now listen, don't even think for a minute that you're going to be able to convince that Laodicean that, uh, that they're maybe not right with God because they're not fulfilling the mission. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing how we can disconnect from some of the, the simplest things in the world, and yet Laodiceans are real big on missions. They, they, they find a mission. Listen, you're, you're going to have a mission in your life. Uh, and a lot of Laodiceans have found the, you know, the abortion mission. And they like to stand on corners, and they spend their whole life fighting th that issue. And you see, never really connecting 
that that awful atrocity that we do to babies, that maybe we might be doing that awful atrocity eternally for people that we don't share Christ with every day. What we're doing is we're committing spiritual manslaughter on them because they live near us, they work with us, and somehow we'd rather stand on our corner fighting that issue than taking our life and using it for the mission that Jesus Christ has left us here to fulfill. Another area that we, we can convince ourselves that we're living a godly life even though we never face any persecution. Did I miss a point there? Is that the next one? Okay. Just want to see if y'all are keeping up. Now, now, now listen. Uh-oh, Laodiceans can quote 2 Timothy 3.12. Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And yet, though they can quote that, it never comes. But a Laodicean will never make a connection that no persecution means no godly life. Because you see, as Laodiceans, we've convinced ourselves we're godly. So that all there, well, it must not mean us. See, spiritually, we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. I mean, a Laodicean, he'd never have to trust God because, man, he, he's got four MasterCards, Avisa, Sears, JCPenney, Texaco, and American Express. So why, hey, why would we ever need to trust God for anything in our life? And, and when it comes to the Laodicean church, why, why would we need God there? I mean, you, you need revival? Then, hey, just call up the nationally known evangelist who will guarantee so many results based on the size of your crowd and he'll be gracious enough to come and minister to you if you guarantee him a certain size love offering. I mean, why would we need God when you got that? I mean, why would a Laodicean church ever need to pray for the Spirit of God to breathe life into the church? I mean, my goodness, the pastor and his staff, they've got all kinds of, of ways through their programs to give the appearance of life even though it's not from God. Remember, because he's on the outside knocking. But you see, that doesn't really matter as long as the numbers and the nickels are up. And you see, and the pastor can feel successful. We need nothing. I mean, Laodiceans, we don't even need the forgiveness of God because Laodiceans have got Christian counselors who for 75 or 100 bucks an hour will tell us that our sin problem really isn't our fault. You see, it's not really a sin problem, Mr. McGillicuddy. You really have a physical problem. You have poor secretion of the endocrine glands, and, and with this medication, I think you'll be able to, to deal with your addiction to rape and, and murder. And it's not really a, a sin problem. It's, it's a parental problem. You see, your parents disciplined you in anger when you were a child, and, and it's not really that you're a rebellious, self-willed, carnal, sinful wretch desperately in need of repentance and the washing of the word. No, it's not that. Pretend, pretend right now that your father is sitting over in this chair and what I'd like for you to do for the next 30 minutes, I want you to tell him 
what you think and, and what you really feel and get all of that aggression out on Him because that will make you feel better. See, that's the junk that goes on in Laodicea and we'll shell our money out for that because we don't want to be right with God. We just want to feel right with God. And as Laodiceans, we'll flock to hear somebody or read somebody or listen to the tape of somebody who will make us feel right without the you know harsh biblical words like repent and lament and weep and fast and examine and study. Oh, Laodiceans, folks. We want people to soften the message for us so that we never can really get to face the facts. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul's words to Timothy, he said this, for the time will come, and we're living in it right now, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heed to themselves teachers having itching ears. Laodiceans don't want truth. They want someone to, to scratch us where we itch. You see, that, that's why we're so satisfied. That's why we have need of nothing. So that's what Laodiceans think. That's what Laodiceans say. That's the Laodiceans' analysis of himself. And now let's set that against God's analysis of Laodiceans. You know, Laodiceans, what they like is they like to be comfortable in the world and they like to be comfortable in church. Now, we can't do anything about you being comfortable in the world, but we can definitely do something about you being comfortable in church. Amen? Okay, here's God's analysis, and it's quite a different story. First of all, God says, we're lukewarm. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, I know thy works. That's a scary thought, isn't it? He knows everything we thought and did this week. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. We're not cold, dead apostates, but we're not on fire of God and for God either. He goes on, I would thou weren't cold or hot. He said, I, I, I'd rather you go one way or another. You, you see, at least then the, the people who need to be saved can tell what Christianity is. Verse 16, So then because thou art lukewarm. Now, now stop there for a second because I want you to see this. The reason that Laodiceans are lukewarm and rarely ever become anything other than lukewarm is that we think lukewarm is good. We think that lukewarm is the goal. But you see, we don't call it lukewarm. You see, if we called it lukewarm, we'd change. So, so we don't call it Lukewarm. No, the 20th century word is balanced. Balanced. Laodiceans talk a lot about balance. Balanced budget, balanced diet, balanced tires, and the balanced Christian life. You, you see, where we don't want to be too dogmatic. We don't want to be too black and white, gray is our color because you know this ladies gray goes with everything 
You see, that's where we like to be. Comfortable in the world. Comfortable in the church. Nice little gray life. Balance is our deal. Balance is a good Christian word. A nice spiritual word. The only problem is it's not a biblical word. Hello? (laughs) And, And folks, listen. The Christian life as the Bible presents it, is not balanced. It's not. I mean, where is the balance in Jesus' statement in Mark 12:30? And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Okay, once you've given everything to that, then what do you got? All. Seek not the things on earth. Don't live for those. Don't lay up those treasures. Lay it up in heaven. Balanced, right? Where's the balance in that? You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Where's the balance in that? You see, there's no balance lay out a scene and say, well, you know what, if I lived a life like that, man, people would think that I was a a kook, and how in the world could I reach people if they're looking at me in this culture thinking I'm a kook? Okay, now let me ask you this. Do you think that you might win more people to Christ, or have won more people to Christ in the last year if you just were so in love with the God of this book that the acceptance or approval of the world meant absolutely nothing to you. You were totally disconnected from the world and this system. You had the power of God on your life. Do you think that maybe you might have won just a few more people to Christ this last year than you did while they were thinking that you were still pretty cool? You you see, we, we feel like we've got to adapt. And because we've adapted, we never reach any Bible. Anybody, God says, I hear you. I hear all the stuff you say. I know all the stuff you think. But you're lukewarm. And God says in verse 16, it makes me sick. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Listen, folks. That's that's our our little so-called balanced Christian life right there. It makes God sick. And look at the middle of verse 17. The next thing God says is true of us. First part of verse 17, He showed us what we think and say about ourselves. That we've got all together spiritually stuff. And then next He says, We are wretched. We are wretched. Verse 17 says, And knowest not that thou art wretched. And you see, that's what's so amazing is that we don't know this about ourselves. And knowest not that thou art wretched. I mean, we're so self-deceived thinking that we're it spiritually and God says, you don't even know it. You don't even realize it, do you? That it's not just that you're missing the mark by a little bit. You're wretched. Next he says in verse 17 that we are miserable. 
And isn't it the truth? I mean, Jesus said in John 10.10, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Let me ask you, where are the Laodiceans who live an abundant Christian life? Most Christians on this planet today, folks, they're miserable. They're miserable at work. They're miserable at home. God says in Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4, that He would fill our home with all precious and pleasant riches. And most Laodicean marriages are neither precious nor pleasant. They're miserable. And you see, men, that's why some of you are so flirtatious at the office, not to mention here in church. That's why you have the lust problem that you have and why you're so vulnerable to members of the opposite sex. It's not your wife's problem. The problem is you haven't let God fill your home and your life with all of the precious and pleasant riches because you're too busy trying to acquire all of the riches that money can buy. And you're so busy knocking yourself, trying, uh, knocking yourself out trying to get all of those things you don't have time to seek the wisdom and understanding and knowledge that God says you've got to have in order to know the blessedness of marriages. God says, Laodiceans, you're miserable. We're miserable because the TV and the media and advertisers have filled us with all types of appetites that cannot be righteously satisfied. Laodicean women can spend more time looking in catalogs and in mall windows and in the mirror than they do in the Word of God. And they keep constantly looking at all of the stuff around them that they don't have, regardless of the fact that we live better than two-thirds of the world and we are materially we're rich. But more, 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 and because we don't have this, we're miserable. Next he says, you're poor. Uh, and remember, spiritually, the Laodicean thinks he's rich. God says, you're not rich. You're poor. And you know what? It's the exact opposite of the believers back in the Smyrna church period. Look, look back in chapter 2 and verse 9 about what God said of them. He says, I know thy works and, thy, and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Those severely persecuted believers in Smyrna we're poor, but God says they're rich. Laodiceans are rich. God says you're poor. And you know what's sad about Laodiceans, folks? Is they would rather be rich materially and spiritually bankrupt than to lose everything if it meant spiritual wealth. And again, we'll sit here this morning and say, oh, well, not me and yet walk out of here today convincing ourselves we're doing both. Financially rich and spiritually rich. That's Laodicea. And that's why God says, you're poor. And next He says, and you're blind. You're blind. It, now, now listen, it, it's not that we ha have a little problem where we don't see well. We're blind. 2 Peter chapter 1 tells you how it happens. It says, Once you get saved, give all diligence to add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. And he says, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be unbar or barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ but he that lacketh these things is blind. 
God tells us why Laodiceans are blind. It's because we haven't added to our faith the things that he told us to add. You know, oh, we, we've added a lot of things to our faith. Pride, self-indulgence, positive mental attitude, tongues, legalism, philosophy, science, intellectualism, scholarship. Oh, we've added all those things, just not the things that God told us to add, and because of it, we're blind. And we never do anything about it because we think we see so well. We, we think our vision is just fine, and so we never, we never really come to this book and let us give, a, give it the eye exam that we need because we think we've got it all together. We think we're just seeing just, just fine. Laodiceans can listen to all this and say, now surely, surely, you're not talking about me in all of this, right? You're not talking about me. See, that's, that's what the Lord's saying. You're blind. All this lukewarm, wretched, miserable, poor, blind stuff, you don't, you don't mean me. And because we don't think it means us, we stay right there. And then he adds one more characteristic of us in Revelation 3.17. Look at the end of verse 17. He says we're also naked. In Revelation 16.15 he says, Blessed is he that watcheth. Okay, now, now listen. In order to watch, what do you got to be able to do? you got to be able to see. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked. Now, now listen, you know what happened to us Laodiceans? The, the Christianity of our day took our garments from us. And listen, it wasn't the New Agers. It wasn't the violence of television. It wasn't humanism. It wasn't atheism. It was the Nicolaitan class of Bible scholars and doctors of theology who took our Bible from us and made us dependent upon them to know what God really said and what God really meant by what He said. And let me tell you something. Once you lose this book in your life, you lose the ability to dress yourself. And that's the situation in Christianity in Laodicean age. People can't dress themselves because they don't have a book that'll clothe them. So that's our problem. That, that's our Lord's condemnation of us. But He doesn't just, just leave us hopeless. In verses 18 and 19, He gives us His, his counsel or his, his correction. Here's how to correct the Laodicean problem. He says in verse 18, I counsel thee. And listen, Laodiceans have heard the counsel from everybody else, the so-called Christian psychologists, the doctors of theology who will counsel Laodiceans for 75 or 100 bucks an hour and give you some kind of half Freudian, half Christian gobbledygook that never has any real, real biblical basis. And you see, Laodiceans will gladly shell that out rather than coming to the Lord for themselves and getting the real counsel that they need. And the, really, the only counsel that is ever going to get them out of their Laodicean condition, in Psalm 119 and verse 24, David said, Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Hey, you need counsel? 
the Lord gives you 66 of them right here. If you've got a Bible, you've got all the counsel you need. But you see, most Laodicean Christians don't have a Bible because, again, they let the doctors of theology and Christian scholarship take it from them and lock it up in original manuscripts that don't exist. And you see, since we don't really have an infallible standard, we've got to go pay money to them to get their counsel. And the Lord tells us in verse 18, the only way out of our Laodicean problem is to get His counsel. And what is His counsel to Laodiceans? He says, I counsel thee, first of all, to buy of me. Now now listen, to get His counsel, it's going to cost you something. Not 75 or 100 bucks an hour, but it is going to cost you. In Isaiah chapter 55 and, and verse 1, it says this, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, Come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy, and eat. Now, that's our problem. We don't have any money. We're poor in God's eyes. we got a lot of it otherwise. We're poor. We don't have any money. So how in the world can we come and buy? You see, you know how you buy what God has to offer? How you buy it is when we've spent all of our human resources and we'll finally come to the point where in humility we will say I'm not rich I'm poor I'm so poor I'm absolutely bankrupt I have no money and when we'll come to that place it puts us in a great position what he says there in Isaiah 55, 1, he that hath no money, the Lord says, you come, buy, and eat. And you know what it's going to cost us? It's going to cost us something that we lay out of sea and have an abundance of. Pride. That's how you buy that which is without money and without price in abject poverty of spirit, coming to the Lord and saying, I don't have anything to offer. I don't have anything to give. And at that moment, He gives us what we need. The ability to buy of Him what we need. And what is it that He says Laodiceans need to buy of Him? Look at it quickly. Verse 18 again. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. You see, it's a paradox. When you finally admit your spiritual bankruptcy as a Laodicean, it's then that we become in actuality what we thought we were before with our pride. When you get to the point to where you absolutely are bankrupt spiritually, God says, you're rich. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 7, Peter talks about gold tried with fire. And you know what? It's in reference to the trial of our faith that comes through persecution. You know what the church in Laodicea needs a great big dose of? Persecution. But you see, we're so much like the world, we don't prick their conscience. I mean, the only difference that they see in us is that we file into this building several times a week, but we live in the same pursuit of all the stuff that they do. Our lifestyle 
certainly doesn't make us the antagonist of the world system. You see, we, we don't sell Jesus out in the Laodicean church period because of the, the, the rack or, or torture or being burned at the stake or watching our kids die in front of our eyes. No, you see, in Laodicea, we sell Jesus out for a stupid beer and a cigarette and a weekend at the lake. So, you see, why would the world ever want to persecute us? I mean, they don't look at us and go, wow, I'm a sinful wretch. And you see, it's not going to come from the religious crowd either because Laodiceans are so inclusive and so accommodating to false doctrine and false teaching. They aren't going to ruffle the feathers of the religious crowd either. Do you remember what the Lord commended the church in Ephesus for back in chapter 2 and verse 2? Look at it. He commended them because they were intolerant of some things. There were some things that that church back there in that Ephesus church period, they couldn't bear, and He commends them for that. He commends them because they tried them which said they were speaking for God, and when it didn't match this book, that group of believers back there, they found those people liars. Laodiceans don't call people liars. Laodiceans are too spiritually sophisticated for that. You see, they think that if a guy says he's a Christian, if he lives a godly life, then he ought to be able to stand and say whatever he says, even if it doesn't match this book. And nobody ought to say anything about the fact that what he said doesn't match that book, which makes him a liar. You know what Laodiceans can't tolerate? You, you know what Laodiceans can't bear? Laodiceans can't bear those who expose false teachers as liars. We're going through the study of church history. And you know what we had to do? As we're getting our landmarks through history, we had to expose some false teaching in our day. And you know what we had to do? We had to call some names, people that are teaching false doctrine. And because I you know, exposed the false teaching of some of people's favorite Laodicean superstars, you see, it doesn't matter that they were making alliances with the mother of harlots in Revelation 17 that is unbiblical and unscriptural, but you see, what matters to a lot of folks is that we're just nice to everybody and who are we to judge them? And you see, you get mad at your pastor for being obedient to the Word of God while your Laodicean superstar is disobedient to the Word of God and you pat him on the back. Go figure. I mean, I don't get it. So, no, Laodiceans aren't going to get aren't going to know what it is to be persecuted and so they'll never know what it is to be gold tried in the fire and so in the Lord's sight they'll never really be rich so he says listen buy gold listen you want to, in, you want to in, invest in something that's really going to have a great return buy gold not that kind the gold of this book stand on that book and when you stand on that book You'll get the persecution from the world and you'll come through it as gold. As gold. So he says, buy, buy gold. Next he says in the middle of verse 18, buy white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of our nakedness do not appear. In contrast with that with what he says in verse 4 of chapter 3 about our worthy brothers and sisters in the Sardis church period who would not defile their garments but walked with him in white and Laodiceans have so defiled their garments they're so defiled by this world they're so spotted so wrinkled 
and blemished, so corrupted and polluted, they've rotted right off of us to the point that He looks at us and He says, you're naked. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4, He talks about groaning that we might be clothed and not found naked. But let me tell you something, you're never going to groan until you see your spiritual clothing the way that Jesus does and understand the reproach of our nakedness in His eyes when a white robe is hanging on the other side of that closed door. I mean, it's available to us. All you got to do is just go open the door. white robe is there to clothe us. And then He counsels us concerning one other thing, our, our blind eyes. At the end of verse 18, he says, Anoint your eyes with eye salve. Anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. You know what's interesting about the city of Laodicea at the time that the Lord wrote this letter in 95 AD? Laodicea was famous for producing an eye salve that was, was made of some of the natural resources in that area. It was found in abundance in Laodicea. And they would have shipped that ISAV throughout all of Asia Minor at that time. And it's just kind of ironic that the very people who had the solution for everybody else's problem were the people who needed the remedy more than anybody else on the planet. And you see, it's just a, an absolute perfect picture of Laodicean, Laodicean church period. I mean, if there ever should have been a, a church who had the ability to see. It ought to be the, the church in, in this period. I, I mean, you, you look at the resources that we have available to us today to study the Word of God in the Laodicean age, and, and you look at the fulfilled prophecies that we have been able to, to see take place right before our very eyes in the last 50 years or so. I mean, we're, we're seeing it all come to pass right in front of our eyes. I mean, if there ever should have been a church period who had the ability to see, it, it's this one. But we don't just have a, a seeing impairment. He says we don't see at all. We've got everything that we need, but our biggest problem is we don't see our need. And since we don't recognize our problem, we never apply the solution. David prayed in Psalm 119 and verse 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. See, that's the eye salve that needs to be applied. The Word of God. So he says, buy gold, try it in the fire, and buy white raiment, and anoint your eyes with eye salve. And then he gives two more bits of counsel in verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Let me just say this to you this morning. I know that this has not been the funnest message that we've ever had in our life. You may feel this morning like, yeah. I'm being rebuked. I'm being chastened. You know what? If that's your reaction this morning, you're right on target, man. Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And I, I'll just tell you, I've, I've, I've had myself pulverized this morning. Have you? Good. Good. We need it. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Then, then he gives us the next bit of counsel. Letter D. Be zealous. Be zealous, therefore. 
don't be lukewarm any longer. Get out of the middle of the road. Be zealous. Go for it. It's okay to be black and white in this culture. Go for it. Don't, don't forget about adapting to the culture. Live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Be zealous. And then repent. Repent. That's what God's looking for for Laodiceans. He's looking for repentance. You know what God wants to hear from First Baptist Church of New Philadelphia? Lord, we are a Laodicean church and we repent. And let me tell you something. That doesn't mean one thing unless you and me, the people who make up this church, will say, Lord, I confess I am a Laodicean and I repent. I am a Laodicean. I am lukewarm. I am wretched. I am miserable. I am poor. I am blind. I am naked. And I repent. It's not everyone else. It's me, God. It's me. Laodicea is me. And look at verse 20. Here's our Lord's challenge. I mean, you come to the place of that repentance, and look at what it says. Behold! I mean, it's like, wham! Your eyes, your eyes open. Your ears open. You, you see Him at the door. And you hear him knocking. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him and sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit me with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in his throne. Let me ask you something. Do you hear him knocking this morning? Do you hear him knocking at the door? Listen, folks. We've taken... We've taken months to talk about this very issue that Laodicea is a choice. All you got to do is just do what we've heard this morning and open the door. And he comes in and his presence is known in our life and in our church and his power is there. We become the overcomers that he talks about there and Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10. And then he calls, or gives us the call in verse 22. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The Spirit of God has brought us to the book of Revelation. Week after week, you just keep leading one of your pastors to just keep pounding the same thing. We're living in Laodicea, but Laodicea is a choice. Are you going to open the door and become something other than a Laodicea? Let's pray. Oh God, we are everything that you said that we are and we repent oh God 
we desperately need. respond to what you've shown us. You've made it so abundantly clear. It's, it's all spelled out for us. We have no excuses this morning. And I pray that you'd help me. I am a Laodicean and I, I understand that and I, I want to be something different. I've sought to uphold the truth of your word and I recognize that I too am guilty of these very things. And Lord, I want you to do something different in me and in this church and in the life of every person that's here. So Lord, I pray that this would be a turning point in our church. And if you just keep your head bowed and eyes closed for just a sec, those of you who have already put your faith and trust in Christ, would you please just talk to the Lord about what He's talking to you about right now and repent. But if you're here this morning, you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Oh, oh listen. Would you please forgive us for not showing you the Jesus of the Bible? You, you've seen today that the Christianity that you've seen is, is a farce and it's a long way from being what God intended it to be. But listen, Jesus is real. And something else, your sin is real. And your sin separates you from God and it will separate you from God eternally in flames of hell unless in repentance of your sin and trusting your own way you'll come to Jesus Christ and Him alone as your only way to be saved, to have your sin removed. And listen, that's the repentance that you need this morning. Lord, I do pray for the salvation of people in this room. I pray that this would be the day that you open their eyes to the reality of who you are and who they are. And I pray that you'd bring them and draw them to yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.